let's say that the arborists and the historians are being conservative and that the big red oak tree that stood on the Harvard Divinity School campus began growing there merely a century ago at the latest. That year, 1919, was the same year that Congress voted to make the Grand Canyon a national park. The day that tree was cut down was the day of my conversation with Terry Tempest Williams, a writer in residence at this oldest of American universities. She is the daughter of the Land of Eons, the American West, the Grand Canyon, Zion National Park, Bryce Canyon, Monument Valley, and of the spare and intimate places in her beloved Utah. For a lifetime of work about the American West, like The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks, Williams is the winner of this year's Robert Kirsch Award from the Los Angeles Times. But this day, Williams could not keep from her mind this one Massachusetts tree that was felled as she watched and mourned a living thing lost to the world and to her. Today, the tree came down, and one of my students who had a relationship with this red oak thought, what can I do? to remember this tree. And she gathered hundreds of acorns and boiled them, and she created bottles of ink from this red oak. And it's a sepia tone, almost the color of the leaves themselves with a red hue. And she's writing the story of the tree in the ink of the acorn. And another student gathered, I think it was 90 pounds of acorns last fall, anticipating this. And she's a farmer from Maine. And she ground the acorns into a flower with her mortar and pestle and made these acorn flower wafers as a communion. And I just thought, these are the gestures that matter, even in grief, especially in grief, so that You know, somehow grief is love, and love is action, and actions shared create community. I wanted to ask you about whether it's hard for humans to see and really understand what's right in front of them. Does it frighten humans, the nature of nature? I ask myself that a lot. What are we afraid of? And why do we look away? And it strikes me that one of our tasks as human beings is is to not look away, but to witness what is beautiful and what is hard at once. What do you think of the description nature writer, as though nature is a thing apart? It's not what I would call myself. I would not call Richard Powers a nature writer. I would not call Barry Lopez a nature writer. I would not call Louise Erdrich. I would say we are relational writers. You know, we're writers who are engaged in the world at this moment in time. But I think we're writing the truth of our time. We seem to have a zero-sum relationship with nature, an us-against-them kind of relationship. And only after we have won that war can we sit back and say, what a pretty tree, or what an interesting bear. I look at these beings, and I don't see that separation. I see the separation among my species. I killed that tree today. That was not other. That was me. That was us. But, you know, there was a moment, and forgive me for being personal, but, you know, they tied these ropes around 
the arms of the tree and then lift them up. And as I said, they were floating through the air until they were lowered down into the hands of men who then delivered them to the chipper and then the chipper spit them out into sawdust. And as they were lowered and they took what literally looked like a noose, I thought of my brother, Dan Tempest, who hung himself in July. And today I watched my brother's death again and again and again with each limb that was taken down, each limb that was wrapped in the noose of these ropes and then delivered. And I witnessed the cremation of my brother. I witnessed the chipping of these trees. To me, they were the same thing. And again, to not look away, I witnessed the grinding of the bones of my brother with my youngest brother. Our family has spent most of our days in the desert landscape. And I said to Hank, what are you thinking? And he said, probably the same thing you're thinking. Are these rabbit bones? Are these deer? Are these owls? And in the end, our brother's ashes weighed eight pounds, two ounces. It was his birth weight. It's the same weight of a gallon of water in the desert. There's something beautiful about that. And then Hank took Dan's ashes into the mountains where our brother worked with hawks and eagles, banding them during migration. That, to me, is an act of reciprocity. And it's beautiful and difficult at once, but it's what gives me solace. How, well, our human aesthetic seems to be for many people that what is beautiful in nature is something that is green and lush and that it is controlled. We like almost a zoo of nature where you can see a few of these and a few of that. But nothing is dangerous. Nothing is bigger than you are. Nothing is out of control. I love the wild. I love the uncontrolled. I love the unmanaged. But getting up in the morning is a risk. Writing is a risk. Relationships are a risk. Walking in the land is a risk. To me, that's the great gift of the American West, is that you can't take yourself seriously. You can take the landscape very seriously. Just the other night, you know, coyotes were howling, and we opened the door and held back. I think sometimes I'm feral at core. I'm so proud to be of the American West because of that that's of the untamable. What do you think of people who look at the desert of Utah or will look at the Arctic Wildlife Refuge and say, it's so empty, there's nothing there? And that's really the response. I remember we had a friend from New York and a friend of ours with a new relationship and he said, I would love to bring my friend out to Utah. Can I stay four or five days? And we just said, the door's wide open. They came, they were gracious. We had a beautiful dinner outside, you know, on the porch, watched the evening light. The stars came out, the quiet, the silences. The next morning, I heard this stirring quite early. I got up, and her bag was packed. And she said, I can't stay here. And they left. And just as they were getting in the car, she turned to me and said, aren't you afraid you'll be forgotten? And I wanted to say, I hope so. (laughs) But I think... We all understand landscape differently. I mean, I look out from our porch and it's everything. And she saw nothing. 
there were no people. There was no place to get coffee. There was no place in her mind to go except for back home. So I understand that. But, you know, I think that the desert is so often defined by what it isn't. There are no trees. It is not green. There is no water. But for me, it's more than an acquired taste. There's no place to hide. Everything is rendered bare with great intention and adaptability and, again, beauty. But I think that's part of the reason why we're experiencing what we're experiencing right now. The massive oil and gas development. Our current president who gutted Bears Ears National Monument by 85% and saw it only as real estate, not as sacred land to the Hopi, Navajo, Ute, Mountain Ute, and Zuni. I keep thinking, how can we extend our notion of community to include all life form? What might a different kind of power look like, feel like, and can we extend it beyond our own species? Is there, can there be justice for all? The way that people who think as you do are often regarded, there's a big vocabulary, a big list of synonyms like tree hugger and your father has used the phrase, you environmentalists. First of all, why is that an insult? And where do you think that comes from? If I could count all the names, the synonyms that I've been called. I was walking down Salt Lake not so long ago, and this man just came up to me and said, give it up. And I said, excuse me. And he said, give it up. It's over. Give it up. And I said, give what up? And he said, the wilderness, the wild, all of it. Just get over it. And he walked away. And I just thought, how do we get over the very thing that has given us life? I don't know why it's categorized as other or why people discount the protection of landscape as something different than the protection of family. We're all made of the same stuff. People think of writers just as observers who sit on the sideline and take notes and then deliver their ideas, their judgments. But you're an activist as well, a writer with a rap sheet. You've been arrested for what's called civil disobedience. I don't see myself as an activist. I'm not even sure I see myself as a writer. I see myself as a citizen engaged. I see myself as a human being trying to do the best that I can. And I can't imagine not engaging. I can't imagine not participating in the conversation. I can't imagine not laying my body down for something I love. It's what democracy demands. It's what it asks of us. It is not a spectator sport. I think about Emily Dickinson when she says, life is a spell so explicit, everything conspires to break it. How can we not respond? I respond on the page. I respond in the world. I feel heartened by our youth that are demanding that laws change, that policy changes. This is not a small movement. This is a movement for our lives and for the lives of other beings. Is there any reaction from your readers that gratifies you most, that makes you feel, this is what I hoped to do? When someone comes up and hands me a book that I can barely see as a book, because it's been rained on, sat on, written (laughs) over, traveled. I just love when books are used. I love when books are loved. I love that 
people give books to people they love and say, please read this, you'll understand me better. I love when someone comes up and says, thank you. What you wrote makes me feel less lonely in the world or reminds me of another story or reminds a young woman she does have a voice. I know the writers that have saved my life and those that I was able to thank. Who are they? I wish that I could have thanked Rachel Carson for her courage. Wallace Stegner was a huge mentor to me. And I remember with a book I wrote called Refuge, it received a terrible review in the New York Times. And I happened to be with the writer Edward Abbey at his place in Arizona. And I was crushed as a young writer. And he said, congratulations, you disturbed someone. And that is exactly what we should be doing. Terry Tempest Williams, I can't tell you how much it's meant to me to talk to you. Pat, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The music is Eric Satie's Nocien, performed by Daniel Varsano on the Sony Classical label. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast.